I had like a friend in high school, in junior high, who really, really liked this book series and like aspired to be like the people in the movie, which then made me wonder who all of our childhood role models were, like who we wanted to be. Like, Joe, you clearly wanted to be a, a G.I. Joe. Um, <laughs> no, I wanted to be a Ninja Turtle or Batman. <laughs> that... Right. That That's all I was wondering. I was like, I wonder what these Jags wanted to be when they were growing up and if it had any influence on who they became when they became an adult, I think, which we Kinda. are now. I think, what, I'm 36? Yeah, that's that's somewhat uh, adult. I, too, wanted to be Batman, obviously. Well, yeah. I don't know. Like, I don't, I think, I just always, I assumed I was going to grow up and be, like, a science professor, I think. And I don't think I ever remember having, like, super aspirational, like, I'm going to be an astronaut, ast- astronaut, yes. <laughs> Do you- do either of you remember the science show? You know, we had like Bill Nye, but Beekman, he was this. A Beekman's world. Yeah. Okay. There was this um, like wacky clownish. It was, a, it was a science show, like Bill Nye, but more cartoony. Uh, and there was a like a funny female sidekick and a man in a rat suit. I don't remember this, and I'm very sad that I don't. So I never got into Beekman's world as a kid. Like I was aware of it, but I, I didn't know anything about this like lady assistant or rat person. <laughs> the rat person I remember pretty vividly, and the only lesson I remember being taught is about centrifugal force. So nice, well done for teaching a five year old about centrifugal force. Yeah, you don't want to be a Ninja Turtle. I I was just you know it didn't seem feasible. There's not a lot of future, and you know it's pizza based. Cramp-biting. Right. <laughs> See, that's always been my problem since I was a child, is I just did not consider the future implications of things far enough. So to me, the Ninja Turtle life seemed like the life. Like I was I was ready to have a rat sensei and <laughs> live in the sewer and subsist on secondhand pizza and, uh, and, and learn martial arts. So was there one that you identified with? Maybe not one you're like, oh, I want to be a Donatello when I grow up. But I think I, I think I definitely identified with Donatello the most, despite having a weird affinity for Michelangelo as a, as a young child and eventually spending a lot of time as Raphael as a teenager. <laughs> right. Yeah, we've all had our Raphael phase. I I sure. probably identified most with Michelangelo, you know. OK. Like in, like in pizza, trying to be fun and funny. But Raph- so now I'm like, it's been a minute since I've consumed any Turtles media. Raphael is the the red one, right? He's yes. the angry one. Yes. So I definitely yeah. definitely had a Raphael <laughs> I split between Raphael and Leonardo. Leonardo was the leader and got shit done. Whereas Raphael was just like cranky and kind of an asshole. The teeniest of the the, the teenagiest right. of the teenage mutants. <laughs> uh, Donatello's cool. I think we would have gotten along. Michelangelo's kind of a pain in the ass. Small doses. That's all I got, Joe. I, I, that Wait, was... So your friend from high school wanted to be Johnny Rico? Is that what is that what I'm to understand here? I don't know that he specifically wanted to be Johnny Rico so much as he thought that universe was cool. Kind of like, you know, we were talking about Mobile Suit Gundam War in a Pocket 0080 the other day. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> and yeah, I love anime. <laughs> uh, the protagonist is like an eight-year-old in a space colony. He's in school and all of his friends are like, oh, I like mobile suits. War's cool. Like pew, 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 pew. Uh, and then the Gundam happens and he's like, all my friends are dead. Fuck. <laughs> See, that was my friend, but only the first part. Gotcha. Yeah, he hasn't had his uh, horrible Gundam awakening. <laughs> right. He hasn't had his best friend actually be a Gundam pilot and his other best friend be a Zaku Zeon. We'll talk about Gundam some other time. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, children are, you know, less capable of understanding irony. Uh, so, I mean, you know, they're, I, I get it. I mean, I love this movie when I saw it. You know, it just came out in, what, 97? Correct. 97. So, yeah, I would have been nine years old, and it's my first, like, seven boobs that I ever saw. <laughs> uh, so, I didn't actually count. Um, I, tr- I tried to count, but I mean... There's so many. There are a <laughs> lot of boobs. There's a bunch. Yeah. So. And a vast variety, too, which I appreciate. <laughs> well, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get into this, but he was a fan of the book series, which was less satirical and more... Earnest. earnest yeah it was earnest is the word for sure we'll we'll get it we'll get right. into all of that here hey everybody welcome to derazzled uh the podcast that fixes award-winning worst films uh sometimes but not so much today today we're uh we're taking the second unit into some some different territory today it's been 25 years since starship troopers Holy came shit. out as it just so happens you're all uh so yeah, we're fucking old. <laughs> uh, so since we were already planning on covering another Paul Verhoeven movie uh, this uh, this season, we figured let's make a whole fucking month out of it. So we've got a little a little primer here to jump in with Starship Troopers, and we wanted we wanted to specifically delve into the uh, the satirical nature of it and and uh, satire and film in general a little bit. Uh, I'm your host, Joe Nealis. Uh, with me, as always, is also host Jack Culbertson and special guest today, uh, returning guest, good friend Steve Luciano. Hello. Hi. Uh, you might remember so, Steve from our Battlefield Earth episode, which I think was our second episode of the show. It was the second episode ever. That's that's uh, exactly right. And as of right now, it is still the sixth highest played episode out of the entire out of the entire show. Wow. I am honored. Um, I really appreciate you bringing me back for another yeah. Uh, yeah. science fiction author who, like, probably could have been... I feel like there's a there's a continuum between good science fiction author on one side and cultist on the other side. <laughs> uh, and L. Ron Hubbard went to the cultist continuum, uh, and oh, Robert yeah. A. Heinlein uh, went to the good science fiction author end of the continuum. Um, so I appreciate you bringing me back. There's, there's still some elements in there that are questionable with Robert Heinlein. Which oh, I can't yeah. wait to talk about. Absolutely. <laughs> Not didn't start his own cult though. You're right. Yeah. But he could have. Yes. He could have. It could there have. was a religion that came out of one of his books. Ah, Stranger in a Strange Land, mm-hmm. yes. So uh before we before we actually jump into talking about the production of this film here Again, we're not going to be actually fixing this movie, but I, there are some tidbits about the production here that I do want to share, uh, just so we have a, a bigger understanding about what all went into this. First, I want to know, uh, do you guys know the scores that this film currently has on uh, Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb? I do. I think I might know the general for Rotten Tomato. What is that, Jack? Is it 57? No. Huh. That feels too low. What's your guess, I mean- Steve? Let's go, let's go 85. 85? Yeah. 
Okay, so uh, currently it's actually sitting at a 68 on uh, for the uh, Rotten Tomatoes tomato meter. Uh, audience well, score is a 70 as of right now. So, yeah, so Jack undershot it, Steve, you overshot it. And if you um, average them together, it is nice. <laughs> nice. Uh, so what about IMDb? Score out of 10. I would guess probably like a 6.8. 6.8? 7.2. 7.2, okay. Uh, Steve is the closest without going over. 7.3. Almost spot on. That's a, That was a good guess. So, yeah. So, clearly, this movie has, uh, has undergone quite the uh, uh, quite the, the change of opinion uh, amongst critics and viewers. Because, uh, as we'll cover later, it really didn't land <laughs> whenever it first came out. So... We'll jump into the, uh, to some information about the production here. Um, sources for this, I'll be honest, I'm sick. I didn't do a whole ton of deep diving into this. Uh, so most of my information is taken from Wikipedia. I am well I am well aware before anybody tweets at us about this that there is a book titled Making Starship Troopers that is all about the making of Starship Troopers. I did not have time to track that down, but it is also like the primary source of the Wikipedia article, so it's fine. Uh, I did also find some uh, news articles that were uh, that were quite useful. There is a "How We Made Starship Troopers" uh, interview by Paul Hode in the uh, in the Guardian that was published back in 2018, uh, where he interviews uh, briefly Paul Verhoeven and Denise Richards. There is uh, "Attack of the Hundred Million Dollar Bugs," which is. Attack of the Hundred Million Dollar Insects uh, by David Cronkey of the L.A. Times, published back in 1996, and that's about it. It was about as far as I got with sources. All right, that so is, that is thank you. So this production actually began in 1991 as an attempt by RoboCop producer John Davison to get the band back together for another project. Uh, he started with Ed Newmeyer, uh, who had co-wrote RoboCop along with Michael Miner. Uh, but Ed and Mike had realized that their creative partnership was starting to kind of hit the rocks and was starting to fall apart a bit. So Newmeyer decided to uh, branch out on his own and decided he wanted to, uh, he wanted to write a sci-fi picture that he, that he envisioned as being uh bug hunt at outpost seven. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, which is an amazing sci-fi title. I kind of wish that he had stuck with that A idea. I wish it had been oh, made. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it is the most B-movie B movie to ever be a movie had it actually been made. 1957 uh, B-horror covered by Mystery Science Theater. Yes. That's what I want. A hundred percent. And it would... It would <laughs> oh, God. It would, it would rival Space Mutiny, I, I want to believe. So I, about this project, Newmeyer had this to say, I wanted to do a big, silly, jingoistic, xenophobic, let's go out and kill the enemy movie, and I had settled on the idea that it should be against insects. I wanted to make a war movie, but I also wanted to make a teenage romance movie. He kind of so, made those things. That is ultimately what, yeah, what Starship that, Troopers ended up being. That is being, ultimately sure. what Starship Troopers ended up being. Yeah, no, he had already kind of honed in on the idea there, though... If I'm not mistaken, at this point, he had not read Heinlein. Uh, he mostly chose bugs because his wife has a debilitating fear yeah. of them. It's a good choice. I mean, it's, you know, a classic archetype for a reason. I mean, you know, he, he and, and Heinlein were happy with the same, the same right. zeitgeist. Racism yeah. for bugs. Yeah. Racism for bugs. Yeah, right. exactly. 
Yeah, same. Orson Scott Card did it too. You know, it's it's, it's a common thing. Uh, so Davison had a development deal with TriStar at the time, which was uh, under Sony Pictures. And when he brought Newmeyer in to pitch to pitch the movie, that was when they all realized, wait a minute, this is a weirdly similar to Starship Troopers. I do want to note as just a quick aside, because this guy keeps popping up here and there. Uh, at this time, Sony was co-chaired by John Peters and Peter Goober. God damn it. <laughs> Uh, at least until Peters was ousted as a result of a series of scandals, including his involvement in the Heidi Fleiss Hollywood Madam case. So keep in mind that is the that, that is the era of Sony Pictures that this project got started under. Is John Peters the like giant spider guy? He is okay. the giant spider guy. One hundred percent. He's the okay. giant spider guy. <laughs> Want to make sure I'm up on the on the of lore. So he he would have been gone before making uh, Starship Troopers. Yeah, he. I think he he got ousted. I think probably very early in this in this writing process, in this pitch process. Uh, but Peter Goober stuck stuck around until 1994, if I'm not okay. mistaken. So he, at least one half like a, of that partnership was still around. Like a great movie to put that stupid giant spider in. You know, you'd think so. I mean, they're already enemies referred to as arachnids. Like it's it, it almost writes itself yeah. into the thing. But no, he wanted his spider to be the spider. Uh. Uh, so at this point, they considered maybe just doing an adaptation, but Davison was convinced that the rights had already been picked up elsewhere. So he just told Newmeyer to keep doing his thing and stay the course. Um, the only thing that really changed is instead of instead of uh, Bug Hunt at Outpost 7, it just became Outpost 7. Though they still kept colloquially calling it Bug Hunt, so they may as well have just kept the better, cooler title. Or was Sam Jackson to like snakes on the yeah. plane? <laughs> oh my God! Right? He could have he could have convinced them to just keep the better title and kept and kept that train a rolling, but no. So uh, as they continue to uh, to work on this draft and continue to kind of try and get some steam going for this project, TriStar was starting to kind of lose enthusiasm. As a uh, a last ditch effort, they decided, okay, well, let's actually see if Starship Troopers is available. And lo and behold, it nobody had the the film rights to to uh, to this book. So had they just thought to look in the first place, they could have avoided a, uh, like a whole year almost of, a, of, of time and potentially gotten this out sooner, which maybe would have helped with the, uh, with the release a little bit, as we'll, you know, we'll touch on later on. So 1993, Newmeyer's working to get his draft to fit Heinlein's novel, and Davison's here trying to rally the troops. Now, Newmeyer had a bunch of problems actually working with the with the uh, the source text largely because of Heinlein's politics uh which Steve you know a thing or two about Robert Heinlein correct uh yes so uh, go go ahead and tell us about Robert Heinlein sure uh so my knowledge of Robert Heinlein uh comes from uh first growing up reading science fiction novels uh from from the big 3 which is Heinlein Arthur C Clarke and Isaac Asimov uh, and then also yes. I did did a uh, I've re-familiarized myself with Oob via a Wikipedia dive. Um, nice. So, uh, yeah, Robert, yeah, so the, the big three are like the big three science fiction authors, uh, in like the, the 40s, 50s. So, of course, uh, white dudes, um, middle age at the time, you know, old in their, their, their golden age, but, so of course it's three old white dudes. Robert A. Island was born, uh, I believe in, uh, early 1900s, uh, so he's in Missouri. Uh, a good German family, uh, Missouri, uh, <laughs> a Navy family. So he lobbied really hard to go to, uh, the Naval Academy, uh, and finally made it, uh, I believe in, in the 20s, 30s. And uh, there was a Heinlein in every American war. That is the, that is the, the <laughs> mythology, yes. 
Yeah, uh, he's kind of a Lieutenant Dan in that way. Yeah. Like, he, like <laughs> yeah. it, I don't know if they died in every American war, but he there was supposedly a presence in every big American war for a certain you period. You can't of time. kill a Heinlein unless you're throat cancer. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, so yeah, he, he was in the, um, the military in the Navy, got discharged, uh, he had tuberculosis, I believe? Yes, pulmonary oh, wow. tuberculosis. Yeah. So he was, uh, discharged, you know, with disability, kicked around the, the 30s, uh, tried to re-enlist in the 40s, but was not able to, and then, uh, you know, became like a kind of an engineer, uh, science fiction author. Um, I, I think- don't know if it- this is correct or not, but I read somewhere that at one point he tried to enlist, and they're like, you are too liberal. That is the thing that I, I learned from his Wikipedia guy. So I knew Heinlein Fucking as like what? <laughs> yeah. I knew Heinlein as a crotchety libertarian mm-hmm. sort of semi paleo conservative. But in fact, apparently he was like really big into the New Deal. Yeah. Uh so he was like a big wow. supporter of the New Deal. He was he was real liberal in his youth. Um even into his adulthood. Um and then uh not to blame this uh on, on a woman, because it's a very Heinlein thing to do. But my understanding, again, based on the Wikipedia deep dive, is that uh, his politics changed when he married his third wife, Ginny. Uh, which, uh, a long line of, of Ginny's being married to <laughs> men doing terrible things. Yeah. Um, so Heinlein had... Clarence uh, Thomas has entered the chat. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Heinlein had three wives. Ginny was the third. Um, and apparently, uh, you know, very strong woman. Uh, Heinlein is known for writing his version of strong women, which yeah. is they're pretty problematic, but like they're good for the times question mark. Right. It's like, it was a step up for the times, but is now also problematic. Just like, just kind like Joss Whedon. Right. I was thinking also Frank Miller. Yeah. Just like, I, I just cringed so hard reading, rereading the book. Like the, anytime Heinlein describes, yeah. women, it's like the, 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 the fairer sex kind of deal. Like, just, yeah. Uh, but all the pilots in Search of Trooper are women, because eyes or something. Women have the, the temperament or whatever. I, right. Yeah. right. Uh, men with their cocks can't be flying planes. They'll go grab the joystick and end up right. masturbating. You can't have that. Can't have that. Happens every time. <laughs> I, I can, I think I grabbed the quote. Oh, uh, yeah. Girls are simply wonderful. Uh, just to stand on a corner and watch them going past is delightful. They don't walk. At least not what we do when we talk. I don't know how to describe it, but it's much more complex and utterly delightful. Uh, they don't move just their feet. Everything moves in different directions, and all of it graceful. Uh, so that is very Lovecraftian of him. That is a uh, Johnny Rico's uh, internal monologue at one point. Ah, uh, right, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that is so Heinlein. Uh, he uh, his politics drifted rightward, uh, and the precipitating event for him to write Starship Troopers. Was, uh, it was during the Eisenhower administration, if I recall correctly. Uh, and I believe that's right. Eisenhower. Oh, right. Yeah, uh, there was something to do with, uh, they were gonna not stop nuclear testing, or there was like a petition to stop yeah. nuclear testing, and Heinlein yes. was just incensed by them yeah. stopping nuclear testing. Like, you're capitulating to the Ruskies! If I'm uh, not mistaken, Isaac Asimov was also involved in this and was on the nuclear disarmament side of the argument along with along with Eisenhower. And then and Heinlein just like went absolutely apeshit over, over it and like tried to get a petition signed to get them to continue nuclear testing and only got like 500 signatures. So nobody gave a shit. I like that Ike wasn't 
<laughs> right enough for Heinlein. <laughs> yeah, no, he he really uh, took took a turn at some point. I get, I'm I'm guessing it was you know World War II. Um, you know, yeah, I think so. Some some combination of his his wife and World War II just made him go go off the the deep end into like weird libertarian territory. Well, if I recall, that was I think that's his third wife. Yes, and his yeah. second wife was very liberal which he was also described as that at the time. So he kind of drifted with whoever he was with, maybe, or I don't know. He claims maybe that his the second politics... marriage ended so acrimoniously that he was like, no, I am abandoning this whole philosophy. Right. Uh, however, all I think all of his marriages were polyamorous. I definitely heard really? that about, this, I think at least his second. I would not be surprised. Mm. Um, you know, he, uh, sure. yeah, no, I'm Highland fucked. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh <laughs> And how? God, the number the number of like old sci fi authors that are just like the horniest dudes. It's just uh, yeah. I mean, I think like Asimov also fun. No shit. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. Arthur C. Clarke. I know, like he's like crypto crypto gay. Uh, like <laughs> he just <laughs> I, you know he's just a British dude who's who's you know buried in Sri Lanka next to his lifelong male best friend. Uh, yeah, so it... Were they roommates? I, I do believe they may have been roommates. Um, so br- bring me back for, uh, 2001, uh, Space Odyssey. And we'll Hell about yeah. Part. Probably 2010, but yeah. Yes. Uh, or any... 3001? There's like, Is there a 3001? Uh, pretty sure. Oh my yeah. god. <laughs> so, moving back to Heinland. So, to me, um, Stranger in a Strange Land is like the apotheosis, like the prototypical Heinland. And I thought Stranger in Strangeland came a lot later than uh, Starship Troopers, but I think they were pretty close. If you... They were next to each other, yeah. which is wild. He did Starship hmm. Troopers, then uh, Stranger in Strangeland. So, so yeah, uh, Starship Troopers is, you know, a like war narrative, like prototypical military science fiction. Like, he didn't use the term Space Marines, but pretty mm. much the archetype of Space Marines comes very, very heavily from this, this book. So, like, you know, Warhammer 40K... Aliens, like, mm-hmm. you know, they all can trace their DNA back to this. So this is like, you know, military, rah-rah, jarhead, and then Stranger in a Strange Land uh, is like weird, hippie, like, yeah. free love. Uh, the term grok mm-hmm. came from that, which is like one that I will sometimes sometimes use and then feel a little dirty for using. <laughs> um, have either of you in- in- encountered the term grok before? I have. So to, to grok Something to like to understand it on like a deeply like spiritual level, and like I I love that idea, but also the fact that it comes from Heinlein. Right. Very... So I've only yeah, read three fair. of his novels. I've read Stranger in a Strange Land, which I very much enjoyed. Uh, the Moon is a harsh mistress. Harsh mistress. I also love that one. That one I liked less because it was his libertinarianism is just like rammed down your throat. And then Starship Troopers, which I enjoyed the least because it's just like, yeah, kill everybody. You're not a real citizen unless you've killed a bunch of people. Dirty bleeping bugs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I came to the Moon as a harsh mistress much later in life than I did uh, when I read Strange and Strange. Okay. I, I have a, a deep and unironic love for the Moon as a harsh mistress. Uh, just because there's like corny, like libertarian. It is very horny. Like corny and horny. Yeah. Like there's like, again, it's him, uh, just like him exploring different, like types of polyamory, like mm-hmm. line marriages on the moon. 
Um, and again, like, you know, he wrote this in like the 60s and mm-hmm. it's like imagining what the moon is going to look like. And it's like, oh yeah, of course, like, you know, the Russians and the Americans are going to end up on, on the, the moon and you get like the, the sort of proto NADSAT, you know, the like mm-hmm. Rus- Russian. So NADSAT is, uh, paper movie, um, a little bit of the old ultraviolence. Clockwork Orange. Clockwork Orange. Yeah, yeah. NADSAT yeah. is the Clockwork Orange version of like what, it, what if like oh, Russian okay. and American slang. And like he does, Heinlein does that in The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Um, King Stoffel, there's no such thing as a free lunch. So right, like, yeah. And, God damn it. Yeah, I, like, I, <laughs> even though my politics are, like, the other end of the horseshoe from Heinlein, uh, I still have a, a deep and abiding love of Moon's Heart as a I mean, like, it's all well written. It's, especially with Starship Troopers, there's moments where he gets on his soapbox, and I'm like, alright, so we're doing three chapters of this, huh? Okay. Um, <laughs> But what I did like about Moon is the form of polyamory that appears in it is the the men far uh, outnumber the women. Mm-hmm. So women marry several men, which I forget the name of that is. Polyandry would be the one name for it. But in so in, in the Moon is a harsh mistress, there's specifically their line marriages. So like you marry into a marriage, mm-hmm. so like a polycule. And then, so, like, you have, like, you have your elder wife, you have your elder husband, and then, like, you know, the line continues. And so it's, like, this beautiful yeah, poly community. That I found interesting and enjoyed. Yeah. Uh, so, that again, like... I had no yeah. idea that he is into any of that. Yeah, again, so so with Heinlein, uh, it is, like, I, the argument that people make, so it is a, like, the book, this book, like, Starship Troopers can, like, can be used to make a very, very, very fascist argument, but people will argue that Heinlein wasn't endorsing this, that he was just like, I was just, just putting ideas out there, and like, I kind of hate that that argument. I'm just that asking defense, questions. But like, it's it's possible with Heinlein, right? Like, he like he, he, he contained multitudes, right? Like, sure, yeah. He was crotchety libertarian uh, and also like guy who thought a lot about like loving people and being poly. So It's fascinating. Yeah, I don't know. Again, I'm not. I was not uh, in Highlands, you know, brain. I don't know. It's not like the the bug in, yeah. the, uh, <laughs> in the brain bug. Um, so I don't know that. But that is like I honestly rereading the book. I was expecting it to be more more fascist okay. than what it was on on a reread. Hmm. So like it, it was. It is like again. It makes fascist arguments. It is very fashy, but it's not like it is not as fashy as. The Verhoeven made it in the movie, um, which is fine. It's good. There, there right. are different things. Um, well, I think. Go ahead. I think the reason it strikes me as so totalitarian and fashy is because I've read Stranger in a Strange Land, mm-hmm. and I'm like, oh, this guy also wrote this. Whereas if I'd never heard of this guy and I picked up Starship Troopers, I'd be like, well, that's very of the time it was written and problematic, but also well written. Yeah, I think the ultimate, um, and I'm trying to find. I grabbed the quote. From this, uh, yeah, so like, the, the most fascist part of the, of, uh, Starship Cooper's novel to me, uh, is the idea that, so simply this, the noblest state that a man can endure is to place his own mortal body between his loved home and the war's desolation. Like, the idea that the noblest thing a human being can do is to sacrifice their life for their country. Like, that is deeply fascist, and it's deeply dangerous because we, we, like, that is a thing that is, like, ingrained in us. Right. Americans is like you got a noble sacrifice for your country, but like 
that that way uh lies to the the way that fascism and, and you you can't vote unless you've served yes so uh yeah Heinlein this is like the fourth or fifth time I've tried to wrap my head around his politics and it I can't <laughs> like <laughs> that's part of why he's so compelling yeah. he is like he's like he is at once situated on the like I, you know libertarianism is fascinating to me as like someone who yeah. agrees with like half of their beliefs but then like totally disagrees right. with the other half it's like how does and I'm sure I, I hope libertarians are out there like wondering like what are these lefties Right, but uh, I I don't know. I hope they are. Again, I think Heinlein would like Heinlein would be like wanting to engage with the ideas. Yeah. So Verhoeven was not a fan of the book. No. The anecdote that I heard again from Wikipedia mm. is that um, he 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 asks um, the writer, he's like, yeah, just tell me the plot. Uh, and then he like two chapters and he's just like, all right, that's it. I'm done. <laughs> yeah. Forget it. Well, it's, it's, it's not, it's so you're, you're half right there. So he tried to read the book himself and got like two chapters in and was like, I can't fucking do this. Just tell me the plot. And so, he, and so Neumeyer told him the plot and he was like, that's extreme. Like, that's really right wing. Like, I don't, I don't agree with, with this at all. And that's where, and then that's where it started kicking the gear that he was, that where he was, he was thinking, well, I grew, I, like, I grew up in Nazi occupied Netherlands. Like, maybe I can turn that into a satirical oh, thing. Maybe I can I work with this. He was born, yeah. I think, in like 39 or something, like early 30s, maybe. Yeah, he was a young kid at the time. When, yeah, uh, so. I, so rewatching this last night, I don't know how I missed the blatant fascism and like, <laughs> For straight up Nazi uniforms, uh, I mean, I was I was a child, but even still, like that's an SS soldier. Like Neil Patrick Harris is an SS soldier. Oh yeah. my god, yeah, and, and that is like as, yeah. that's about as blatant as it gets. But like yeah. for for my rewatch, it was really like that first propaganda bit where all where it's all the mili- uh, all the uh, the infantry just saying I'm doing my part, and then suddenly it's a literal child <laughs> like I'm doing my part too. <laughs> like and it's like holy shit, they really just beat me over the face with that. It is. Ugh, um... I have like I've been thinking about it all year because uh, we're here in Pittsburgh mm-hmm. where the spotted mm-hmm. lanternflies are an issue, and so uh, I, you know, I was doing my part by spotting the bug. I've been doing uh, my part. Yes, that is that is the meme. I think we I think we've made that joke multiple times in our group chat. Oh yeah, um, so <laughs> he didn't get it until now. <laughs> I was like, yeah, me too, guys. What's the big deal? It is, <laughs> and it's just like it's so it's seamless. It's just so close to like reality that it, it, it's it you know it, it it's it's you know the satire that is like too close to reality that like it, you can't see it because it's it's, it's too close to what you expect i wonder if part of the reason it went over my head the first time is that i grew up in an incredibly conservative area and didn't really have liberal friends at that time um you're either incredibly conservative or indifferent i think that's part of that, it i'm sure yeah that could definitely play a role I mean, and again, like, you, if you saw the, if you saw it when it first came out, you mm. were like nine or ten. Yeah. Right? So, like, nine or ten year olds don't understand nuance. They just want space battles and boobs. Right. Uh, <laughs> Except for I watched it on TV, so no boobs. But you didn't get any boobs. Yeah. I got blockbuster version. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, yeah. Though I, I do want to point out the cowardice of not showing any any dicks in, at all in this. Uh, like, Did you, you had a golden opportunity, the... but Jake Busey's just standing perfectly where right. that hole is. Like, and I looked, I, I stopped and really made sure there was no, like, even a hint of dick. 
Nope. Uh, Unfortunately. Not, not even a little neck. Nothing. We did get some great bug cloaca. <laughs> and they, and they, they censor the, the probe going into the bug, bug like mouth cloaca. <laughs> yeah, I just, I, it's just so good. It's just that little detail. Oh, it was, that, was, that was awful. <laughs> All right. On that note, I think uh, let's take a, let's take a quick break, and then we'll jump back in with some more uh, information about the production uh, before we dive more uh, more deeply into the uh, into the satire and whatnot. Do what you need to do with the knowledge of a bug cloaca, and come back when you're done. <laughs> Welcome to Making a Martini, up, dry, and straight to the point. I am the host, Caleb Viggles, accompanied by my CFO, Scooter, who is my dog. And together, we are bringing you the podcast education you never knew you needed. Sometimes more than you get in our own country's actual education system. Do the children of today learn about sex, Shakespeare, and race in school? I mean, maybe, but I sure didn't, and look what happened to me. I started a podcast. And is this really what you want for your children? No, it's fucking not. But I can guarantee that the children in school today don't learn about the Alien franchise, why Grease 2 is better than Grease, and certainly not the joys of Glow, the gorgeous ladies of wrestling, which you will learn here. And if you came here thinking this was going to be a podcast on how to make martinis and whatnot, well, you're almost right, because we are making cocktails. Cocktails for all occasions, including the classic Dirty Vodka Martini, the Pride Teeny, and the Bro Knee, and more. Typically accompanied by a knowledgeable guest, or at least someone who I think is knowledgeable and entertaining. And hey, you might think so too. I mean, what more could anyone with a thirst for knowledge and a thirst for vodka-based drinks want in their life? So join me with our bi-weekly themed cocktail as we take on numerous practical and crazy topics... Have a laugh and get straight to the point. I'm practically drunk just thinking about it. Make sure to check us out on Facebook and Instagram. And remember, please drink responsibly. Cheers. All right, welcome back, everybody. So uh, we last left off before talking about Robert Heinlein there, uh, uh, starting to talk about the attempts to uh, begin this adaptation of this property to a film. As Ed Neumeyer was attempting to adapt the script, he struggled between wanting to tone down Heinlein's politics while also remaining faithful to the story that Heinlein told. Uh, it's an extremely difficult needle to thread, especially whenever it comes to worrying about writing about fascism. His main goal was to try to trim out some of the preachier, more hypermasculine elements of the book and to build up the high school romance angle that he wanted to uh, that he wanted to tackle. And he apparently had done well enough with some of his early drafts that he even had approval of Heinlein's wife, uh, who he had sent a copy. Uh, but this is before they had actually brought in Paul Verhoeven and gotten to what Starship Troopers the film uh, would eventually become. So we'll touch on we'll touch on that a little bit more in just a bit here. Uh, it's important to note before we get into Paul Verhoeven and, and uh, how they actually got this thing greenlit is that there is a rotating carousel of executives at Sony that keep phasing in and out. Uh, Verhoeven, I think, says that every two to th- 
I mean, it's either two to three or three to four months. Uh, somebody would exit and somebody new would be brought in. So he thinks that's a big reason why they were able to get away with as much as they did and why the production yeah, was, was able to work that. the way that it did. John Davison was convinced that they meant the plug was going to be pulled at any moment. So there's, so you have Verhoeven on one side really eager about what they're able to pull off and then uh, Davison just constantly like biting his fingernails, worrying in the corner like, no, they're going to end us. They're going to send us home. Uh, but before uh, before Davison could actually get Verhoeven to sign on, he wanted to make sure he had Phil Tippett locked in. Uh, yeah. Because Phil Tippett was responsible for a lot of the practical effects in RoboCop, particularly the ED-209 robot. He is also, you, know, you might know a little film called Return of the Jedi. He was responsible for the Rancor and that, uh, as well as the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, among other things. Um, if you haven't, please see Mad God. Tippett's involvement was really what got Verhoeven to sign on. He really wanted to work with with Tippett again, especially on something of this nature, which is good because there was not another director considered for this production at any point. <laughs> Uh, the combination of the uh, the creatures, the genre, and the political subtext made Newmeyer and Davison just immediately think, "No, we need to get Paul back to work on this." So there, there was there was no one else that they even tried to reach out to. Uh, Verhoeven himself, it's important to note, also really needed a win at this point because uh, he had just uh, he had or he was still in the process of producing Showgirls, which turned out to be a flop, as we'll cover in a future episode here. Uh, and he had also failed to get a couple of films out of development, uh, a pirate adventure called Mistress of the Sea and a, uh, a film called Crusade that was supposed to star Arnold Schwarzenegger. Ooh. Did we talk about Crusade at some point? I'm not sure. I, you know, I, I I thought that maybe that title sounded familiar, like we had brought it up in another episode, but I genuinely couldn't pinpoint it. I feel like, what was the movie we talked about with uh, Antonio with pirates? Oh, God. Um, Cutthroat Island. Yeah, I feel like it came up around that time. Anyway, maybe? it didn't happen. <laughs> So in order to get the project out of development, Verhoeven took time away from filming Showgirls, uh, a 30-person crew, and $225,000 of TriStar's money to film the bug test footage. And he insisted on directing this himself. It's just a, a brief short of a soldier fleeing up a rocky hillside before being cut off by two arachnids. One he takes out and one takes him out. Uh, so you kind of get a taste for the gore. You kind of get a taste for the tone of the film just from this little bit. Uh, there were a couple of TriStar execs who uh, didn't actually realize that the arachnids were uh, were CGI in this particular uh, in this particular short, which is kind of, kind of weird to think about because they don't match the lighting of the rest of the no. scene. Like they do feel a little bit out of place. Otherwise, though, they look almost exactly how they look in the final film. It's astounding how how well uh, Tippett was able to pull that off, uh, considering how little uh, CG work he had done up to that point. I, yeah, that was the thing that struck me in my watch through. Is like again, and maybe that's the nostalgia because I'm someone who, you know, I've seen this, you know, I saw this 25 years ago and I saw this, you know, yesterday. Uh, but like the effects, like the, the CGI, I feel like has aged pretty well because um, they, they knew what to do and what not to do and like how to combine the different parts of, of the screen. Like it, looking back on it, it has that kind of B movie effect where it's like a lot of the stuff happening in the background and then you have your your talent. You know, mm -hmm. reacting to it in the foreground, um, but it feels relatively seamless to me as, as a someone who's relatively an outsider for you know effects. 
I think the thing that worked for me for the bugs, because I, you know, I knew it was older. The CGI is gonna be a little rough. <laughs> I mean, like Phantom Menace was only two years later, and it had all the money in the world, and it still looks pretty rough today. Yeah. Uh, but the movement of the bugs was fantastic. It's terrifying, uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. I think a lot, a large part of that goes to the fact that they were. They had, they actually did have physical models of everything as well. Okay. Like every bug that they that they showed, there was a model that goes along with them. So they, so there was still a partial practical element to the design and implementation of these things. I had read somewhere that Verhoeven was running around with a broom, so the actors had something to look. Yes, at. yeah. That, I, I, I was going to talk about that a little bit later, but this is yeah. Like now that you, you mention it. Um, since there was a lot of green screen used on this, and this was the first film that a lot of the a lot of these actors were acting on, in particular Denise Richards, like this is her first big movie. Oh. Uh, so a lot of them are learning how to act in front of a green screen. So, like, like, which is already a difficult enough task for a lot of people. So he's walking around with you know tennis balls on sticks and flags and brooms and all sorts of shit to try and evoke um, you know, a reaction out of them so that it feels more authentic. And when they weren't giving him enough, he would start roaring and jumping around and lunging at them to try and get more of a reaction out of them. And and it worked. <laughs> he managed to get some. He managed to get some uh, some decent emotion out of them. You know, despite uh, critics panning of the acting at large this doesn't really have anything to do with starship troopers but what i think what i found interesting about verhoven was he's one of the directors that had a very large dip in their career but was able to rebound you know you haven't really heard of a verhoven film in the u.s for a while but that's because he went home and has been doing yeah he he wanted to go back and focus on doing the movies that he wanted to do uh which he's uh, he's done at least two movies out there, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has said that he would love to come back and do an American film. It's just um, yeah, the opportunity hasn't presented itself. Okay, so we we had mentioned a little bit that Verhoeven could not get into the actual story of of the book. So let's let's take a moment and actually compare the differences of what of of uh, of the book itself and the and the plot of the film because there there are some noteworthy differences. So you guys both read the mm-hmm. book, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes. Okay, I did not do that part of the homework. So what can you tell me about the book narrative? So the, the book is, uh, it's, it's, it's very classic, like hard sci-fi. Um, so it starts in the same place, kind of in medias race. In this case, though, it is an action scene. Um, so it's with a different alien race. We don't see this alien race in the movie. The, 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 the skinnies or something? I, think so. something I, I remember vaguely, seeing like, that name, oh, yeah. Yes. I remember seeing that name in the in the Wikipedia. Yeah. So it starts starts with that scene with like, uh, you know, Rico doing a big, you know, big military action, and it's like very into the description, like the military sci-fi of like this is the action. Um, and the big difference immediately is that uh, in the book they are the mobile infantry are the cap troopers, capsule troopers. They are like they are in power armor, like power yes. armor. Um, you know, they're described as looking like a gorilla with gorilla-sized weapons. And so that's something that would have been real cool to see on the screen, but in, you know, 1990, mid-90s CGI, and with the budget they had, my understanding for that, he's not ever going to make it to real life. They had power suits, and they had power suits that would... I imagine them jumping kind of like the Incredible Hulk does, where they just kind of launch and kind of float along. They talk about being on the bounce, yeah. Yes. So that is a big element of it, of, like, jumping up and down and, like, be mobile, mm-hmm. I guess. And so, so that's the 
big difference from the, the the book initially. However, in the anime, oh right, there's an anime yeah, version of this too. I, I, I haven't, I haven't had a chance that. to watch it, but there's like six episode anime Ooh. where they do in fact have the power suits. Everyone kind of agrees it's terrible, but I still want to watch it. <laughs> and that's the interesting thing is that like the the version of Newmeyer's script that uh, that Heinlein's wife uh, enjoyed had a lot of those elements. It had the bounce. It had the power suits. It had it had like the, the super strength and all that. Uh, and then all of that got cut as they were uh, as they were starting to take budgetary concerns and whatnot uh, into consideration. So what we end up getting is the story of Johnny Rico being a kid from Buenos Aires. Sure. Wanting to want, uh, wanting to en- uh, wanting to enlist and wanting to serve so he can become a citizen, mostly to follow a girl, and that is something that is absent from the book. So uh, mm-hmm. Carmen uh, is in the book; she's a character, but she's just like a classmate of Johnny Rico's, and he doesn't join up for her specifically. He just kind of think they dated, but like that's about it. Yeah, or like you know they dated, but they weren't exclusive. Right, right. Um, yeah, ah, she wouldn't, okay, she wouldn't more... be exclusive with any boy. His, his, you know, Carmen sees that. So, um, Carl is in there as well, um, but he's just, just a, just a dude, uh, Carl does not have psychic abilities, he does go to Starside R&D, um, which is one of my favorite, just little bits of, of jargon that, oh, chef's kiss. Um, Very good. So yeah, the, the teenage romance element is, like, gone out of it. It's just Johnny Rico going to boot camp, talking about being in boot camp, and, like, the Canadian prairies, you know, struggling with, with wanting to do this, um... So the character in the movie is Rachak, uh, Mr. Rachak, the the yeah. the, um, the teacher. Uh, it's a separate character in the book. It's uh, Dubois, Mr. Dubois. Oh yeah, that's, right. that's the that's the teacher in the, the book, teacher, right? Yeah, um, right. Because they kind they kind of they kind of uh, uh, um, composited him out of uh, like a lieutenant later in the book and uh, and and the uh, and the teacher. I think is a really smart movie. Yeah, yeah, no, some, some but it's yeah. not present in that Diamond book. What is present are frequent cutaways back to the classroom yes. of like just pages and pages oh. of Dubois like giving political uh polemics. Um some of the language is similar in terms of like talking about the use of force. Like um I think the the movie does does it I think a little bit better, but like, you know, the more you know, force is the ultimate solution. That's that's cause you know bare yeah. aggression has has solved more more problems than such something yeah. something. Right. Yeah. What I thought was obnoxious in the book was how everyone who's in the military is like nobody respects the military we're just kind of this like bastard child of the government they i do like that they spend a lot of time trying to talk people out of joining the military which you see that a little bit in the movie really quickly with the the man who has a a a metal arm and no legs military maybe what i am today yeah 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 that part so so he but he's but he's saying that in earnest like he like, yeah he's he doesn't view it as this maimed me and you shouldn't do it like he's he's actually like oh yeah well, son congratulations in the book so that character exists in the book i think like colonel ho or something but the, the thing that is amazing in the book is they they talk like they talk about that and it's like he he, he has his you know missing limbs but then he like when he finishes his job, he puts his prosthesis back on. Puts his prosthesis back mm-hmm. on and goes about his day. Like he is doing this as a show. Like he is specifically right. trying to scare people away. Like they're they're huh. they like strip away that level of of irony, I guess. And it's a really interesting. I think yeah, it's really cool because you see him on the job trying to talk people out of joining. But then when he's done with his job and he meets up with a 
think he meets up with Johnny later. He's like, oh, nice. You're doing the job I had. That's fantastic. And he's just like really happy to have another guy join the military. Fleet Sergeant Hell. I'm sorry. I apologize for, for Fleet Sergeant. Yeah, so so it uh, it goes very very much into like Johnny's day to day life. It starts out as a grunt, um, and it, it takes a very uh, Ender's Game turn. And that like halfway through, he's like, "I'm I'm going career." Um, so instead of his two year term, you know, he's like, "I'm going to go be an officer." And so then it goes into like the the philosophy uh, of of being an officer. Do you remember what he gets whipped for? In the books, it also oh okay yes. So in the books, oh, so the whip the whipping is still in the book. Very the much whipping so. is, but he is less emotionally. Again, there's composite characters, but basically he makes he makes a mistake. Um, like they're they're simulating dropping a nuke, and he drops a nuke in an area where it would injure some of his troopers, and so mm. no one no one is actually injured, but because his action would have injured people, he gets whipped. The whipping's much Jeez. bigger in the book. Yeah, there's a couple more depictions of violence. There is a an escaped trooper uh, who murders someone uh, and get, then gets, gets hanged. Uh, oh, wow. He talks about how his dad never let him go to watch the whippings as a youth. Yeah. So there's a little bit of that like, public you know, corporal punishment. Yeah. Which they, which you do get touches of that in the film. It's just not it's not like directly tied into the narrative in ways like that. You just you get like the the RoboCop style kind of news cutaway, which of, I love. Uh, uh, yeah. Oh, I thought it was fantastic. Live just, at 6 p.m. The, uh, live at six p.m. This watch this man's execution. Yeah. And you you lose kind of the day to day aspects of Rico's experience in, uh, in boot camp in the film, but you're you're thrown more directly into like the culture of it, like, at, like the um the the brutality of it as like Clancy Brown's uh, Sergeant Zim is just breaking cadets arms and shit uh, and immediately calling for a medic uh, and you know they have like the technology like the little like back to brace you see that yeah. guy wearing immediately after yeah uh, and then the whipping takes place after Breckenridge uh, ends up losing his head in what uh, what we thought was supposed to be like a laser tag match more or less. Yeah, the, and so it turns out they were using live rounds. So that's the element again. Highland being his weird crotchety self is in the books, so that it's the the similar thing happens with live fire. Except so the, the soldiers are firing blanks, but they they say that one in five hundred bullets is actually a live bullet. So like oh you, you got to be on your toes in case you accidentally hit someone. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot again. Like there's a, a, another trooper who like oh the trooper who hits an officer he hits Zim, and then mm-hmm. it's like. This like talk like delving into like pages about like officer morale and like right. you know as an officer I can't afraid for, can't you know can't let my men like me and they have to be afraid of me and, mm-hmm. you know I let this guy hit me and now he's it's a, I'm a failure Rah. more or less the book has a lot of day to day going through the military and becoming a soldier and like having his unit um, there's much less fighting mm-hmm. as you might expect there's there's way more battles in the movie. Yeah, there. I I had the feeling they they probably amped up the uh, the action sequences in the movie. Uh, a lot less uh, descriptions about how terrible Karl Karl Marx is. Is it? Uh, oh, are there yeah. anti Karl Marx diatribes yes. in the book. Uh, <laughs> these kitchen illustrations demolish the Marxian theory of value, the fallacy from which the entire magnificent fraud of communism derives, and illustrates the truth of a common sense definition. Uh, nevertheless, the disheveled old mystic of Das Kapital turgid. Tortured, confused, and neurotic, unscientific, illogical, this pompous fraud, Karl Marx. Oh my god. Yeah, it's pretty great. Uh, <laughs> he I, I had turgid to, in there. Yes. Um, he, 
Heinlein really fucking hates Karl Marx. Well, he, Clearly. The Cold War really got him. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, there's a lot more of that in the, uh, in the book. Um, no, no teen romance. Um, the word bug, I think, I, it's not until like 48% of the way through the book is the word bug even mentioned. Um, so yeah. they are really wow. like, yeah. And then the bugs are way different in the book, aren't they? Like, don't they like wield weaponry? Yes, and stuff they have like lasers and intelligence. They're not just like mindless. They have, they, you know, they clearly have an intelligence. It's just a different intelligence. Whereas they have more of a hive mind, right? Yeah. Again, similar to the buggers uh, in in Ender's game. That's yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what I was just thinking. The other uh, aside that I wanted to hit in the book plot is he does he goes like super like super predators in terms of uh, oh no like there's a whole thing about like. Talking about how, like, the, again, like, he's so, so close to L. Ron Hubbard and that he is going on a diatribe against, like, sociologists and social yeah. psychologists. And then he goes, it's like, ah, in the, in the late 20th century, people were afraid to go into public parks. These juvenile criminals hit a low level. Uh, born with only the instinct for survival, the highest morality they achieved was a shaky loyalty to a peer group, a street gang. The junior hoodlums who roamed their streets were symptoms of a greater sickness. He's like he's he literally goes and talking about parks like in, like law-abiding people. Uh, Dubois had told us hardly dared go into a public park at night. To do so was to risk attack by wolf packs of children armed with chains, knives, homemade guns. I forgot like, about this part. Uh, to be hurt at least, robbed most certainly, or injured for life, probably, <sighs> or even killed. So yeah, uh, this went on wolf for years. Packs right up to the, of children. Yes, um, right up to the war between the Russo-Anglo-American alliance and the Chinese hegemony. Um, murder, drug addiction, larceny, assault, and vandalism were commonplace. Were commonplace. No word park's the only place. These things happened also on the streets in daylight, on school grounds, even inside school school buildings. But parks were so notoriously unsafe that honest people stayed clear of them after dark. Like I, I, I like. Uh, what was, wow. <laughs> and this was the '60s too. Like this is not even like you know this is not like the Central Park Five. This is decades before, and yet Highland yeah. has this like hard on for like. Ah, the parks. They can't be. Can't even go into our beautiful public parks. So that's so weird. Question: If I gave you these four people, where would you drop them from left to right politically? Arthur C. Clarke, uh, Isaac Asimov, Asimov, which is the only one I have not read of this group. Heinlein and L. Ron Hubbard, who I hate even including him in this list of people. But I could not finish this fucking book. Um, are we doing? Uh, Quadrant style, like uh, the you know, oh yeah, yeah, libertarian anarchist left right. If you uh, can do that math in your head, then yeah. L L R H is mostly like top right. He's uh, authoritarian conservative. Uh, Heinlein is bottom right, pretty hard like libertarian conservative. Um, Asimov and Clark, I don't. I, they're somewhere like center left. Like they're not super authoritarian, not super anarchist. Definitely more on like the centrist to liberal side, I would say. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I'm not super familiar with uh, Asimov's and uh, Clark's politics, I, 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 sure. except that they're not as conservative as right, right. Heinlein. As Heinlein, yeah. Uh, that, yeah, that would be a fun, a fun aside. Uh, yeah. But, but yeah, it's just, it's just like so bizarre. And again, it's like, compl- like it's decades before like Hillary Clinton talking about super predators and like. Yeah. It's it's a thing like it's it's one of those things that people it's are always so wild. Yeah. Like, a, you know, we we talk about like, a lot of people talk lately about how prescient 
this movie is in terms of like our political climate and whatnot. But it's so wild to see that prescience goes back another layer. <laughs> it's yeah. uh, good lord. Asimov did iRobot, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so we have a chance to talk about him in the future. <laughs> oh yeah, no, there's opportunity. <laughs> and with that, we're gonna wrap this episode up here, folks. Hey, does something sound different? That's because it's Joe from the future. Hi, I'm not sick anymore, and I am back from the future to record this outro because we, A, weren't expecting this episode to become a two-parter, and B, weren't expecting there to be such weird audio glitches causing Steve's audio to be uh, a little wonky yet again. So uh, my apologies to Steve for whatever the hell happened there. We tried. Uh, It will be better the next time we have you on, I swear. And thank you to everyone who has uh, been listening with us here. So if you enjoyed this episode, please uh, like, subscribe, rate, and review everywhere you possibly can. We're on iTunes. We're on Spotify. We're on Good Pods. We're on Stitcher. We're on Podchaser. Everywhere you can find podcasts, you are likely to find Derazzled. Uh, those ratings go a long way to helping people find us and get it, and getting us out to more people. And we want to be out to as many people as humanly possible. So thank you to everybody who has done that and plans to do that. Uh, if you want to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook at Derazzled Podcast, on Instagram at Derazzled underscore podcast, on Twitter at Derazzled Pod, and on TikTok at Derazzled underscore podcast. Uh, if there's something you'd like to see us cover or merch you'd like to see us put into our Redbubble merch store at Derazzled Merch, uh, you can email us at derazzledpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, And I think that'll wrap it up for now. We'll be back here next week with part two of our Starship Troopers and Satire uh, special here. And we'll be following that up very quickly with Showgirls as well. So please join us back here next week where, as always, we'll be sure to razzle-dazzle you.